Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Universities have weed-out classes. The military has basic training. Israel got a wilderness, and they washed out. But God, as always, does what only He can do. Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series Exodus, Provision in the Wilderness, with this sermon entitled, The Lord Our Rock, which covers Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Well, if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 17, where we're continuing to work our way through uh, Israel's experience in the wilderness. And if you've been paying attention at all to Israel's story, uh, our text today feels a little bit like deja vu. It's one of those stories where you read it and you think, well, didn't, didn't we just do this? Like in the verses right before this. Because over and over again, God's people have been grumbling. They grumbled at the shore of the Red Sea when they saw the Egyptians bearing down upon them and thought they were going to be destroyed. In chapter 15, they grumble because they're thirsty and there's only bitter water for them to drink. In chapter 16, they grumble because they don't see any food and they're hungry. And now, here in chapter 17, Israel is grumbling again. But while it feels a little bit too familiar, there's something distinct happening in this passage. Because Israel, Israel pushes just a little bit further. And the event that we're about to read, it's one that is of such notoriety in the pages of scripture that over and over again in places like Psalm 95 and 1 Corinthians 10 and Hebrews 3, the writers of scripture They're going to point their fingers back to this event. And they're going to say, here is a picture of the hardness of Israel's heart. But not only that, here is a warning of the danger such hardness poses even to the church today. Here's what God's word says, starting in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, which means he's the one leading them to this place. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst so Moses cried to the Lord what shall I do with this people they are almost ready to stone me and the Lord said to Moses pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you, you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa, which means testing. 
and Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, would you take us as your people, as those who continue their journey through this wilderness land, and Lord, would you meet us in your grace and in your mercy with the one in whom everything we need is provided, Jesus Christ himself. Would you take this text and would you use it for your glory and for our good? Speak through me in my weakness and show us your son. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was in high school, I played a couple sports, but the one that consumed all four years of high school for me was wrestling. I wasn't a very good wrestler. I was average at best. But I have a lot of memories about my time as a wrestler. A lot of them were good. Uh, some of them were not so good. Cutting weight was never really a f- memory I look back on fondly. But there's one memory that, that is still vivid to me, and I'm not even really sure if it's a good one or a bad one. It was this week that our wrestling coach would always put us through at the start of every season. This week he affectionately called Hell Week. And it was exactly what it sounded like. He would basically use this week as an excuse to inflict on us whatever physical torture he could imagine and still keep his job as a high school wrestling coach. Uh, We would go out to the track and we would look at the bleachers and he would say, start running. And we'd run up the bleachers and we'd run down the bleachers and we would do this over and over until we seemed to get tired and then he would make us start doing burpees. And when that seemed to wear us out, he would go, all right, now put someone on your shoulders and run the stairs again. And we would do this for hours. And then we would rinse and repeat the next day and the next day and the next day until we had gone from Monday to Friday. And this happy, cheery group that began the week had been whittled down to this small, huddled, bedraggled remnant who could barely stand. And I remember as, as a student experiencing this, thinking like, what, why would he do this to us? Like, I didn't get physically fitter from this experience. I mean, when the week was over, I literally couldn't walk without holding the lockers. So why did he do it? And I think it was for one reason. He wanted to see if we could go to a dark place and stay there. He was testing us. He wanted to see what kind of people we were. And Hell Week, Hell Week was the test. We perform tests like this all the time. When we make new friends and we want to know if we can trust them, we test them to see if they can be our confidant, don't we? When you're hiring somebody for a job and you interview them, you're testing them to see are they qualified for this role? Would they fit within our company and our environment? God, God's performing a similar test here. Twice, in Exodus 15 and in Exodus 16, God explicitly tells his people, I am testing you. And for this purpose, to see if you are the kind of people who when you hear my voice, you will actually obey it. To see if you're the kind of people who when some obstacle presents itself, when trouble comes, when disappointment finds you, you will walk not by faith in what you can do or what your eyes see, but instead by faith in the God who has shown himself to be your redeemer and your healer. 
And Israel over and over again fails the test. Until finally we get here to Exodus 17 and they are fully exposed for exactly what kind of people they are. It's the bad news of what sin has done to every single one of us. But the same text, the same story that reveals us for what we really are, it's also a story that reveals to us what kind of God the Lord actually is. And at the sight of his glory, there's only one response. It's not to grumble, it's not to complain, it is to fall into the arms of the merciful Savior and trust him no matter where he would lead. What kind of people are the Israelites? Exodus 17 says they are a rebellious and hard-hearted people. There are people, as Hebrews 3.12 will later describe them, who possess an evil and unbelieving heart. I mean, to, to grasp the depth, the gravity of what Israel does here, you have to remember everything that's come. God has come to his people who have been living in slavery. He has told them through Moses the promise that I made to Abraham hundreds of years before that I would deliver my people from the land of affliction, that I would bring them into the promised land and I would give it to them as their inheritance where they would live in my presence as my people. I am fulfilling that promise with you. I'm gonna deliver you from slavery and bring you to the land and then God proceeds to do just that. He sends plagues upon the Egyptians. He shows that he is the God and there, he is God and there is no other. He shows that he loves Israel and cares for them. He leads them out of Egypt and into the wilderness in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Which can you imagine the assurance of visibly seeing the Lord's presence leading you as you go? He feeds them with bread from heaven when they're hungry, when they're thirsty and the water is bitter. God makes the water sweet. And the whole time, through all of this, Israel doubts, Israel doesn't believe, Israel grumbles, Israel complains, and yet God shows himself to be faithful, though every man be a liar. Not one word falls from the mouth of God that he is not faithful to fulfill for his people. His people consistently sin against him, and yet God keeps showing a grace that is sufficient for every single need. So when we get to Exodus 17, after God has done all of this, you would think that maybe finally Israel has learned a lesson. That when there is a need, like water, Exodus 15, or food, Exodus 16, or protection, the Red Sea. Here is a God who will provide for them in every way. And so what do you do when the test comes? You call on the Lord. You trust him. But what does Israel do? They don't trust the Lord. They test the Lord. They don't just grumble. It says they quarreled with him. 
That's an escalation of anything that's come before. Look at verse two. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people, they thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us? and our children, and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Now, we need to stop here for just a moment because the word quarreling to us in English and to them in Hebrew mean very different things. Uh, In both languages, quarreling denotes hostility. If I'm gonna quarrel with you, usually we're not on good terms, are we? There is a sense of anger, of a desire to get vengeance on somebody else. That's what quarreling means. In Hebrew, it means all of that, but it also contains something else. Quarreling is a legal word. It's a word that in the Old Testament scriptures almost always shows up in situations where someone is being brought before a court. If you do a wrong and commit it against me, and I want to bring you to court, I have a quarrel with you. Israel Israel isn't just coming to God with an angry demand. Israel is coming to Moses, God's representative on earth, and they are coming with an accusation. And what is the accusation? You betrayed us. Verse 7 Is the Lord among us or not? They are looking at everything that God has done and they are saying the plagues were a lie. The bread from heaven was a roost. The pillar of cloud and fire, that was a sham. Moses, he's a con man. And God has brought us here not because he loves us, not because he cares for us, not because he really intended to redeem us as his people. He has brought us here for what purpose? Only one, verse three, to kill us. They have manna literally digesting in their bellies, a pillar of cloud and fire circling around beside them. And what is Israel saying? God is not with us. Why? What's their evidence? Because there's no water. That's it. The lie that Satan whispered in the garden, that behind all of God's blessings, every good thing that God gave, that there lay hidden this evil intent. Israel, Israel hasn't just heard that lie, they are believing and obeying that lie. They are looking at the good God who redeemed them and saying, you are evil. What do you do with a people like that? That's Moses' question in verse four. The people are clamoring to kill him. What do you do with a cantankerous, hard-hearted, ungrateful, rebellious people whose response to overwhelming grace and mercy is to shake their fist and say, you deserve to die? If anyone, if anyone should be getting dragged into court, it's not the Lord, it's Israel. 
And before we start to piously dismiss them, which I'm prone to do, I look at them and think, like, what a bunch of morons. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, guess what? You're the morons. Because what we see right here, it's us. He warns us, Israel is a people swimming in God's mercies who've experienced God's grace. They harden their hearts, they lose, they perish in the wilderness, and guess what? The same temptation confronts you. And we, we've experienced more mercy, haven't we? The Father, who is showing his hand all through this text, he has given us one who's greater than Moses. We have in Jesus one who's redeemed us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the beloved son who's forgiven us, adopted us, brought us into the family of God. A God who has poured out his spirit upon us, not only as a seal of our adoption, a guarantee that guess what, even if you perish, you will be raised to life and dwell with the father in a new heavens and a new earth. But God has promised that spirit would be with us as a comforter and a provider to supply us with everything we need as we walk through this wilderness land. And yet, as soon as an obstacle comes, as soon as there's something that happens where we experience grief or disappointment or pain or there's some need that we in our understanding can't see how it could be filled, what do we do? We don't trust him. We grumble. And oftentimes we don't just grumble, we quarrel with him. I've done it. Sometimes it's verbal. I look at the situation I'm in and I find myself crying to God and saying, why do you seem to hate me? Why would you put me here? Why would you do this thing? Why would you lead me into this place where there seems to be no water? And other times, I may not say anything out loud, but my actions, they scream louder than my words. Because the moment of crisis comes, and guess who I call to? Not the Lord, but to some other savior that in that moment I think is better than him. Which means I'm doing exactly what Israel did. I'm saying, God, you are not good, but this thing that is. And what is revealed in all of our hearts when this happens, the same hard-hearted, rebellious reality you see in Israel. God, God tests Israel. God exposes Israel. And Israel in their rebellion, they test the Lord. And notice this because this is profound. God, in response to their rebellion and ingratitude, God doesn't destroy them. He doesn't say, you know what, I'm starting over. I need another kind of people. No. In a move of glorious condescension, God submits himself to man's sinful test. And he reveals himself to be a greater savior and Lord than they ever could have imagined. What kind of God is the Lord? Exodus 17 says he is the rock who is present with his people to save even sinners like us. Look what God does. Verse five. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people 
taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. God comes to Israel and says, you want to go to court? Let's do it. Moses, grab some witnesses, bring them out to the place where I'm going to send you. And oh, by the way, bring that staff. You remember the one, the one you used to strike the Nile. If you're Israel, that moment's when your heart stops. Because that staff is a staff of what? Judgment. The last time that staff got lifted up and brought down on anything, what happened? The Nile River ran red with blood. Which is ironic because a nation that was overflowing with water in that moment became what? A nation that had no water because of the judgment of the Lord. And Moses, as Israel is very, very aware, Moses is the one who's holding the staff, which is a problem, why? Because he's the guy Israel just wanted to kill. Who's been unfaithful in this story? It's not the Lord. And if it's not the Lord who's been unfaithful, then who is that staff going to come down on? I mean, by right, there's only one logical conclusion. It's Israel. And yet look at what God does. Verse six, behold, literally like look, see, don't miss this. I, the Lord, will stand before you, Moses the judge, there on the rock at Horeb. And you, Moses, you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of the place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Did y'all notice what God just did? There's only one innocent party in this story. It's not Israel, it's the Lord. And yet what does the Lord do? In the face of an ungrateful, unthankful, hateful people, God doesn't put them on the dock in the place of judgment. He puts himself in the dock in the place of judgment. Not as the one who is guilty, but as the only innocent party in the whole thing. And he identifies himself with the rock. And he says, Moses, bring the staff down on me. This isn't a God who's betrayed his people. This is a God who is faithful even when they reveal themselves to be a faithless people. This is the God who places himself in the seat of sinners so that he could bear the blow that sinners deserved. Not only so that they would be spared that blow, but did you notice what happened next? So that sinners would receive the blessing only the righteous deserve. Moses strikes the rock, and what flows out for God's thirsty people? Water. 
water. As those whose hearts are prone to wander, it's good news to find out you have a God like that. And that's, that's the God we have in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite novelists, Graham Greene, he wrote a book called The Power and the Glory. And in the book, he tells the story of a priest who's hearing the confession of a dying man. The man's riddled with fever. He's holding on to the priest's ankles and he is just vomiting out vile thing after vile thing, the acts of violence that he's committed, the lies he's told, the sexual debauchery that he's engaged in. And the priest is listening to all of this and he realizes as this man's litany of sins just goes on and on that he's bored. This man thinks he's an exceptional sinner and the priest thinks in his head, man, I, I've heard this confession a few times before. And he thinks this, man is so limited, he doesn't even have the ingenuity to invent new vices. Sin makes you boring, it doesn't make you great. And then Green writes this, it was for this world, this vile, hard-hearted, rebellious, boring, sinful world, that Christ died. The more evil you saw and heard about you, the greater the glory lay around the death. It was too easy to die for what was good or beautiful. This world, the world we inhabit, the world of which we are a part, it needed a God to die for the half-hearted and the corrupt. The God of Exodus 17 says, I am that God. Because who do the scriptures tell you the rock is? All through the Old Testament, there is this refrain, the rock, he is the Lord. But in 1 Corinthians 10, we are told something just a little bit more. The Exodus generation, this generation that we're speaking of, they drank from the rock, as Paul says, that was followed them in the desert, and the rock was who? Christ. The same Christ who in John chapter 7 stands before a crowd of people and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow what? Streams of living water. That's the Spirit of God being promised. The same Christ who in John 19, when he is being crucified, he is struck in the side by a Roman spear. And what flows out? Blood like the Nile and water. Who is the rock of our salvation? He is Christ the Lord. He is the one who is present to save even sinners like us, who bears in his body the consequences of sin that you and I deserve so that from him would flow the springs of living water that only Jesus really earned. Because there is one person who has passed this test. It's not us, it's Jesus. Because who's the one who went into the wilderness Who's the one who went to a place where there was no water and experienced the tempting of Satan himself who on the cross cried out, do you remember it? I thirst. 
Who is the only one who went through that testing and came out on the other side as one who trusted in the Lord to the very end? It's Jesus. And because he has taken our place and he is offering us life in himself, the spirit of God that belongs to him flows out to us so that we would be sustained no matter what we are facing or what we are experiencing, even if it looks like death. It is the invitation of God not to harden our hearts, but to fall into the arms of mercy and to become by the Spirit, by grace, what we are not by nature, a people who hear and to obey the Lord. And yet this is the danger. As Paul is telling us in 1 Corinthians 10, Israel, they saw this. And yet what happened to Israel? The rest of the book of Exodus tells you they didn't soften their hearts and hear and obey the Lord, did they? They stared into the face of God's mercy and they hardened their hearts even harder still. And God said in Psalm 95 that he was angry and displeased with that generation and they perished in the wilderness. Why, why is this text here? It's because God would not have the same end find us. It's because this temptation is not an exceptional one. It is, as 1 Corinthians 10 says, a common one. And God, he would give us the way of escape that we, unlike Israel, we would be able to endure, not as those who've mustered up their own strength, but as those who walk by his, because of the life-giving water of the Spirit. A couple months ago, I stumbled on this blog called God is on the Bathroom Floor. It's written by a woman named Jane Merchevsky, who's also a singer who goes by the name of Nightbird. And in that blog, she lays out this season of her life that has felt to her like all the world the wilderness of testing. She's barely 30 years old, and yet she's already been diagnosed with cancer three times. And the doctors have told her that this cancer, it is not one she's gonna escape, it is one that is going to claim her life. Her husband, after yet another cancer diagnosis, told her that he didn't love her anymore and that he was leaving. And Jane Murchewski, Nightbird, she writes that when that news came, she curled up on the bathroom floor for three months and she cried and she raged and she demanded that God give her answers for why is this happening to me. She said to him as she writes, I called him a liar and a cheat and I meant it. But then she writes this, and I want to read this in full because I don't think I could say it better myself. Call me bitter if you want to. That's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God. For I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the bathroom grout. I'm sad too. 
I remind myself that I'm praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander, answering prayers they didn't pray. For 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. Fire lit their path each night. Every morning, he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for the answers for the, to the prayers that I didn't pray. I look for the mercy bread that he promised to bake fresh for me each morning. The Israelites called it manna, which means, what is it? That's the same question I'm asking again and again. There's mercy here somewhere, but what is it? What is it? What is it? I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees, in my mother's crooked hands, in the blanket my friend left for me, in the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy that I asked for, but it is mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but will repeat until I do. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. Even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy, and I can't really explain it, but God is in there even now. I have heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough, and it's true. God is on the bathroom floor. In the midst of the wilderness, in a place where there was no water, she saw mercy that she had not asked for and mercy that God had given. And her heart cried out, my God is not far, he is near to me. And if I could add just one thing to that, the answer, the place where that mercy that sometimes seems so hidden is found, it's not just in looking lower, it's looking to the cross because that is the place where the rock of our salvation, he has put himself in the place of sinners like you and like me and borne the blow in his body so that we would receive from his hand riches beyond our wildest comprehension, the spirit of the living God. Our God, in answer to our question, are you among us or not? He says to us, yes, I am. And in ways you could not imagine. I am not far, I am near in Christ. So that what you are not by nature, you would be made by grace. A people who hear, and not just hear, obey the Lord. Who fall into the arms of this merciful Savior and have our hardened hearts melted by the fire of his grace so that we would follow him wherever he would lead, 
even if to our eyes it seems as though there is no water. He's revealed us for what we are. But more important than that, God has revealed himself for who he is. And that is where we find our hope. We pray. Gracious Father, who is a God like you who would meet a people of such sin, such brokenness, and such rebellion with such mercy? We pray, Lord, this morning, wherever we are, Lord, if it is those who are grieving, those who are hurt, those who are lost, maybe it's those who are just so hardened right now that we're not even asking if you're there. We've just given up hope that you are. I pray that you would meet us exactly where we were at and we would hear the voice of the one who reveals himself to be the rock of our salvation. Would your mercy overflow? Would our hearts be melted? And Lord, would we delight in you as the only one who is able to save and not only is able, but delights to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.